John chapter 8. Now, if you were here last week, you heard Rick preach on sanctification. And it was a, it was a great word. In the midst of that word, he spent some time speaking about the truth. And how the truth brings freedom and the truth brings life. And as I sat in the audience and I listened, I was blessed by the content of the message, but I was also blessed because so much of what he was sharing related to what I had already put together to preach this weekend. It was amazing to me. It was, it was so in line and so in sync. And what that tells me, what that reveals to me is the Spirit's earnest desire to really emphasize to us that exact thing about the truth and the freedom that comes to us in the truth. That it is the truth that makes us free. So in John chapter 8, starting in verse 31, the Bible says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. That's a wonderful passage of Scripture. I am sure that you've heard it if you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time. I'm sure you've heard that many times. That verse and what is said in that verse is an absolute truth. It is an absolute truth unchanging, divine in its origin, truth. It does not change. It is an absolute truth that starts with, if you. If you abide, then the truth will make you free. If you abide, then you become my disciples. Then you will know the truth. If you abide. The Word does not change, nor does the effects of the Word. We are the variable. We are the variable. If you, here's an outline of what it's saying. If you abide, you become. When you become, you'll know. When you know, you're made free. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Free from what? Anybody, free from what? Sin. It said free from sin and the condemnation of sin. This is, Jesus answered it in verse 34. Because the Jews that heard him said, how can you say we'll be made free? We've never been in bondage to anyone. And Jesus' reply to that is, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Freedom from sin. Now let me talk about certain teachings that exist. A few weeks ago, if you were here, at, uh, when, when Rick started the teachings on sanctification, he made reference to a particular doc doctrine that exists that's known as sinless perfection. And there are variations to this doctrine, but extreme variations of this doctrine insist that when you become a Christian, from the moment you become a Christian, you are automatically immune to sin. You will never again commit sin ever in your life. That is not what the Bible teaches. There's other doctrines that are kind of on the other side of, this, of the street, if you will, that kind of go in the other directions and teach that even though you're born again, even though that you are filled with the Spirit of God, even though that you've come to know God in truth, you will still sin every day. There is still a certain measure of obligation that you're going to have to it. It's still going to have a certain measure of rule over you. In fact, I've even heard it preached so extreme that they'll say, you're still going to sin every day, almost every hour. Neither one of those doctrines are biblical. Both of them remove from the passage the if you. If you abide. It is an absolute truth. If you abide, the truth makes you free. Period. It doesn't change. The Word does not change. Neither does its effects in our life. If we will abide in His Word. What changes are our circumstances? What changes are our experiences? What changes are our, how we interpret the experiences of our life? Oftentimes we find ourselves trying to interpret or, or reason through what's happening to us in our life based on the experience or, or how we interpret that experience. What you'll find out is that experience is a fine teacher. She holds back no lessons and she conceals no truths. 
But as pure as her instruction is, she cannot teach you all things. She cannot lead you into all truth since she's limited by your capacity to receive her wisdom. She's limited by the framework in which you interpret her lessons. Experience, therefore, cannot be the sole ultimate source of truth because we can interpret, misinterpret the meaning. It's the Word of God that gives the true interpretation of our experiences. It is the Word of God that gives us a true and accurate picture of what's really happening to us in this life as we pass through the quarters of this life, as we experience difficulties, and as we experience good times and bad times. It's the Word of God that gives us a true and accurate picture of what's really happening with our experiences. If you measure truth to any degree by your experiences, or more accurately by your independent interpretation of those experiences, then what happens is you become the source of truth. When you become the source of truth in your own thinking, it's like fashioning an idol in your own image. It's a false god. When your rhetoric becomes your reality, you've situated yourself in a hopeless place. You've talked yourself into loss. He, this is what Jesus said. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said. When your faith is, is founded on the Scriptures, on the true and the absolute truths that are in the Word of God, and when you interpret and you view life through that unchanging, as the Scriptures has said, that's how you see things. When that is the case, out of your heart flows rivers of living water. That's an absolute truth. We use a, a term in modern Christianity. It's not a, a bad term, but it's just a modern term. The term that we use is revival. What revival describes in, in a nutshell is something that is dead or lifeless that's brought to life. It's revived. That's where we get the term revival. Revival is when someone, whether it's an individual or a church body or a community or a nation, has, is dead or dying spiritually and there, there is a reviving of the life of God and an outflow, just like Jesus said, out of the heart, rivers of living water. That in a nutshell is what we call revival. For true revival to spring forth, we cannot do it by desiring schemes. We can't devise plans. We don't bring revival by creating programs, by employing gimmicks. gimmicks. We don't bring revival by instituting our own movements of God and then expect to see the results we desire. That is not the way that it comes. In fact, I tell you, I submit to you, that the incessant implementation of these things by people that are just driven by ambition hinders us as the body of Christ from really finding and walking in the revival that God intends. The truth of the matter is that the change we seek, whether we speak in regards to ourselves personally or the church corporately, is not as far away as you might think. The Word is nigh you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. You see, revival is not a formula, nor is it a method that's properly implemented. The voice of God brings all revival. It's never manufactured. It is in the choice we make every moment as to whether we will believe God or believe ourselves. It lies in whether we will trust in, what, in that which God has assured us is true or trust in our experience or our interpretation of that experience. It lies in the if you, if you will abide. Because the rest that comes after that is an absolute unchanging truth. Revival is sourced in truth. It is not sourced in dogma. It is not sourced in religious traditions, not false conclusions of the truth, not misinterpretation of our experience. It is sourced within the truth. Truth that is from God, truth that is God. Within the truth, we always find revival. Always. Within the truth, we always find freedom. We always find life. Period. Always. If we are not experiencing revival, if we're not experiencing freedom, if we're not experiencing life, we cannot be abiding in the truth. Because the truth always brings life. That's a strong statement. I understand that. And sometimes it can be hard to believe. It can be hard to receive. But as I said, John 8 is an absolute truth. You will know the truth and it will make you free. 
I have another verse. It's Galatians chapter 5. It's verse 1. I actually have this from the New American Standard. When you read this verse in different translations, the wording has changed a little bit. The New American Standard is actually a very literal translation in the way that it tries to bring the Greek into English. And it uses a certain phraseology that, if you don't know the context, could be a little confusing or sound a little redundant. But, but what it says in Galatians 5.1, it says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now the phrase, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. It can sound a little odd, but there is a reason why Paul uses those particular words. You see, in the ancient world, slavery, unfortunately, was a very uh, commonly practiced thing. But within that world and within the laws of that world, freedom could be purchased for a slave. And there was a certain legal process by which it happened. Either the person who owned that slave or a person who was in position to do so could go before a magistrate or could go before a priest, depending on the, the specific terms of the purchase of their freedom, and they could pay a sum to purchase their freedom. They could pay a sum to purchase their freedom. When they paid that sum, there was a document that was drawn up. And on that document, the magistrate would write, For freedom. The payment was made for freedom. What that meant in legal terms within their culture was that when that freedom was granted, it was unalterable. That person never again could be subject to or forced into slavery. Ever again. It was a permanent change. It was a permanent issuing in of freedom. They were made from one thing into another by legal right. It was for freedom that you have been made free. The wording that Paul uses is meant to emphasize the completeness of the act in regards to us. Once for all, it was for freedom you have been made free. Remember back in John, it said, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. You read that in certain translations and it says, set you free. And you read that in other translations and it says, make you free or you'll be made free. There's a difference in the language. When, when you hear the term set free, it has with it the idea of you're in chains or you're in prison and you're released from it. And there is a certain uh, measure of truth or reality in that picture, but it's more than that. You are made free. The very nature of your identity has changed from one thing to another. There's been a legal transaction that has made you from one thing into another. You have been made free. So Paul says in this verse, do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Now, the context of this verse is in, Paul is writing to a collection of churches within Galatia. And the reason that he's writing to them is because they had begun to subject themselves under the yoke of the law. And he was writing to them, the whole letter, the purpose of it is to remind them that they have found their freedom in Christ and under the new covenant. Now, them going back under the law relates very much to them subjecting themselves to sin. But that's a whole other complicated sermon. That's later. Maybe Rick will preach on that. Maybe you could put that on the little questionnaire, the Q&A. Be a great one. Do not be subject again to slavery. Again, if you, you have the option. God has given you the free will. If you, do not subject yourself to that which God has brought you freedom from. If you have ever had the opportunity to um, read about slavery in 19th century America or even watch a, a movie that accurately depicts slavery in 19th century America, what you'll find out is that slavery was about much more than forced labor. It was about much more than the, the physical atrocities that were committed against people that were forced into slavery. Slavery was about the absolute removal and robbing of the very identity of who a person was. It was meant to rob them of their families, of their homes, but more than that, it was meant to rob them of their, their dignity, their self-respect, their very humanity. 
It was meant to reduce them to something less than being a human being. Sin is the same way. It's exactly the same. That's why Paul refers to it as slavery. Because sin is meant to destroy the very essence and the identity of who God created you to be. It's meant to rob you of everything, of every ounce of dignity, of every ounce of, of self-respect, of every ounce of anything that is meaningful. That is, his, that is its intent. What you'll also find out is that those who subjected other people to slavery and su subjected them to the things that they did, the only way that they could do so is with a complete absence of conscience. They could not submit another human being to that and have any conscience about it. Sin is the same way. Sin has no conscience towards your well-being. In fact, its intent is to destroy you. If you doubt it, I encourage you just to take a look at the world around you. Take a look at the lives of the people that you've known who've been subjected to it. Take a look at the way that it's affected your own life in times past, or maybe even now. It's meant to rob you. But here's another thing about sin. Sin has many faces. The way that sin is manifest in your life and affected your life is different than the way that sin is manifested in my life and affected my life. It's different still in the way that it's manifested in your family, your parents, your children, your neighbors. Sin has many faces, but it only has one child. And his name is death. You, you may see a person captured in the sin of addiction. Be careful how you judge where that person is at. Sin has many faces. You may see another person that's captured uh, in selfish pride or greed. That sin is destroying that person. Its intent towards them is the same as it was towards you in the sin that you struggled with. It's exactly the same. <clears throat> it's a terrible tendency that we have to sometimes judge people according to the context of their sin, but not according to the context of their need for a Savior. God has never condemned us or He's never ridiculed us for needing a Savior. He's made every effort to thoroughly convince us of that need, but He's never ridiculed us of that need. To this day, we need a Savior. To this hour, we need a Savior. And we have one. And He's never ridiculed us for that need. Man without God has no capacity to live any differently than within the corruption of a fallen, sinful world. They're not capable. You're not capable of living any other way. Understanding that should affect and change how we approach those who live without God. Let me give, tell you a story about uh, a gentleman that I work with. He actually works in another city. What I do is I, I train. I'm a trainer for a coffee company. I, my job is to help route drivers get better at what they do. That's my job. There's a gentleman that recently came to work for our company in another city that I go to who spent, um, I don't know, nine years, ten years or something like that in the ministry. He was a full-time Baptist minister. Did it for years. Great man. Very nice man. Loves God. Loves people. After the second or third day of coming to work for us, he came to a realization. He got out of the bubble of his ministry and he came to a realization. And that realization was that many, if not most, of the men that work for us in our company don't know God. And so what he encountered was certain behaviors and specifically certain languages that were, to say the least, vulgar, harsh. It was offensive to him, and I understand that. There are things that I've heard some of those men say that would make a sailor blush. I mean, it's rough. He does. <laughs> what he did was he went to the branch manager, and he complained to the branch manager. He'd only been there two or three days. And he said, look, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. I find that kind of language offensive. I want you to go tell those men that they are not to speak that way around me. What he did effectively was he ruined his witness to those men. Because in their mind, he became a tattletale. 
That's all he is. He's a tattletale, and he's just trying to get us to behave differently. Now, again, I understand. Sin is an offense. And exposure to those kinds of things should grieve us in certain ways. I understand that. But the sensitivity of our fragile little ears should not cause us to forget that the corruption in the heart of the person without God will not allow them to live any other way. They're in bondage to it. They're enslaved by it. That's all they know. That is all their mind can process or understand. I'm not making that statement either to excuse sin. That's not the point either. It's a statement which is meant to provoke us to consider how we exist within a fallen world. How we interact with that world. How we reach to that world. Because I've known other people in the exact same context who knew God, who walked with God, who represented Christ in such a way, who engaged with those men in such a way that it caused many of those same men to change, to willfully change their behavior around them. More importantly, more importantly, it caused those same men to at least stop and consider the Christ that they have seen represented before them. As Christians, we have the privilege of, of like, like Tim was saying, we get to come to church 52 weeks a year and hear the Word preached. We get to hear sermons. We, we leave church and we can hear sermons in the radio. We hear sermons in, on the television. That's wonderful. It's a great thing. Sermons can be edifying. They, they speak things to us that are meant to encourage us, to help us in life. But I tell you this. In this life, in this world, in the society that we, that we find ourselves in, the greatest sermon that is preached never happens in a pulpit. The greatest sermon that you will ever hear preached is the truth declared in your life. It is the truth declared through your life. Your life is your sermon to the world that's dying, to the world that needs Christ. Not only that, your life is your ministry, and your ministry is your life. I had that said to me, I heard it said in a home group meeting several years ago, and when I heard it, my mind processed it, but I really didn't understand what the man was saying. It took years. It took me years. Maybe I'm slow. Could be. But when I came to understand it, it changed the way that I lived amongst people. Because what it means is this. Every day, from the day you were born again and God filled you with His Spirit, every day from then on, your life is the ministry that God has given to you to the world. Every place that your feet tread is meant to be ground that you go to represent Christ. Everywhere you go, revival goes with you if the Spirit of Christ is within you. Your life is your ministry, and your ministry is your life. If you're waiting for the grand vision down the road, you will forget the ministry that God has given you today. Every day, every breath, every moment, God has granted you a ministry that can impact people, that can make a difference to the one standing in front of you and to the one next to them. But you forget it if you don't realize that ministry is not just the full-time thing that we go into. Everyone, when you are born again, you are born into full-time ministry. And every moment of your life is a representation of the living God that saved you. Your life is your ministry. And your ministry is your life. So allow me to redirect. As Christians, when we're overrun with sin, when we find ourselves being strangled by fleshly works, which we've yielded to, it has everything to do with where we are in our walk with God. Nothing to do with the power of sin having some measure of dominion over us. It has to do with where we are in our walk with God. It has everything to do with whether we are abiding in the truth that is God. That's why when the Scripture says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, that's exactly what it's saying. If you... If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Conversely, if you don't walk in the Spirit, you will. It's that simple. There is this capacity within you, if you are born again, if the Spirit of God is on the inside of you, there is this capacity within you because of Christ who is in you that those things should have no place at your table. 
There is no greater deterrent, listen to me, there is no greater deterrent to wickedness than the presence of the one who is perfectly holy. Nothing will chase away darkness on the inside of you faster than the light of God. When freedom is produced in our life, when it is produced in our existence, in our nature, when it is the delightful fruit of the Spirit that we find ourselves feasting on, all of that is a result of a life lived in God, of abiding in the truth. It is not uncommon that when someone begins to experience the deep richness of life that comes from God, when revival springs up and they find life and they find fullness of joy bubbling up from their innermost being, there comes along also sometimes when they've gone from a place of, of being dead spiritually or if they've not experienced that for a long time, then all of a sudden they're revived inwardly. It's not uncommon that, that somehow there's this concern that comes also of how am I going to hold on to this? Well, God has done this thing in my life. Now what do I got to do to hold on to make sure I don't lose it? It's very common. I've experienced it. I know people who are, who are strong in the Lord who've experienced it. It happens. But that concern lacks the point of view that the fullness of life, the deep sense of rest that they are experiencing, is a permanent part of the truth they have entered into by faith. Not only does it remain so that if we abide in the truth, His presence and His life abides with us. That's true. But also, that fullness of life is an indicator of when we have wandered from the truth. It's an indicator of when we have accepted something into our thinking that does not originate in God. So then what happens? When that occurs, the yearning which arises, maybe some of you have experienced that, that yearning that arises from within you for the fullness that you once knew, that yearning is meant to draw you back to the foundation of truth that brought that freedom in the first place. When what we believe is founded upon what is true in God, when it originates from the truth that is God, for He is the truth. The truth is not just simply facts. He is the truth. When what we believe originates from what is true in God, our faith touches and it brings into us, by the grace of God, all the fullness that is in God. That's what it says in John chapter 1. I encourage you to read it. We have received of His fullness and grace upon grace. We have received of His fullness and grace upon grace. If you touch the truth, it will change you. It will change you. It will forever alter the course of your life. Now in the past, I've spoken these kind of things to people. I've spoken about the fullness of His presence. I've spoken about the fruit that God gives, the rest, the peace, the peace of God. And I've gotten interesting, if not mixed, reactions at times, especially when I speak about the peace of God. One objection that I have gotten, ironically enough, is that we are not supposed to be led by or motivated by our emotions or feelings. And that's true. We are not meant to be led by human emotions. But when I hear such an, such an objection in reference to the peace of God that passes all understanding, especially when I hear it from someone who confesses Christ, it makes me curious as to what degree they've actually experienced the peace of God, if at all. I'm not questioning their salvation. Don't misunderstand me. What I'm questioning is how much have they ever experienced the peace of God. The reason that I say that is because when a person has a first-hand encounter with God and the fruit that is produced from that encounter, it is more than evident to them immediately that that peace that's produced within them, it is sourced in anything but what is human especially fickle emotions. They know that the origin of that is not human. When you're filled with the peace of God, you know that didn't come from me. I didn't manufacture that because somehow I came up with the right ideas or somehow I made that happen. If you've tasted the peace of God which passes all understanding, you know firsthand it's not an emotion. It's not a tingly feeling on the back of your neck. Peace abides. It fills every sense of your being. It makes you aware of God in truth. In fact, the Bible says that let the peace of God rule in your heart. Let it have a place of dominion and rule. It's how God speaks to you and reveals things to you. Now on the other hand, if you've never experienced the peace of God which passes all understanding, 
it's possible you don't have any idea what I'm talking about makes no sense to you. And that's okay. Because you can experience it. You can know it. You can feast on it. We want God's peace. We want God's life. We want blessing from God. We want strength from God. We want freedom. We don't earn God's favor, His peace, His life. We don't earn His blessing by behaving at a high enough standard. We walk in God's blessing by believing the truth, by knowing the truth because we abide in His Word. Neither can we transform our behavior by our own efforts and then somehow make that pleasing to God. Our behavior changes, but it changes because we are transformed in the deepest part of our being by Him. That's why our behavior changes. The difference in those two foundations is vital and how strong you will stand in the Lord. So the question then becomes, to what degree can we compromise the truth and expect it to produce life within us? We set aside the truth when society demands we conform to its vision of morality. We set aside, we compromise the truth when our employer requires us to separate our religion from the workplace. We compromise the truth when religion demands that we not declare it because it goes against the traditions that they have. We compromise the truth for many reasons in many places. We compromise the truth, then we search for life at the bottom of a dry well. You cannot compromise the truth and walk in life. You cannot live in a lie and find freedom. God's Word always brings life. Always brings freedom. Period. It is the truth that makes you free. So then if it is the truth, if the truth makes us free from something, it makes us free to something as well. It makes us free to partake of something as well. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to cover a couple of other things briefly. It's funny, when a preacher says briefly, sometimes the audience has a different amount of time in mind than the preacher. <laughs> briefly, it's subject to interpretation, right? Romans 8. Starting in verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. I'm going to read that again in case you missed it. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We are not debtors to the flesh. We do not owe the flesh anything. We are not subject to the flesh. We do not need to pay it interest on occasion. We owe it nothing. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. We are heirs because we are sons. When I say sons for the next ten minutes, don't think that's gender specific. It's we who've become the children of God. We are sons, and therefore we are heirs. The Bible tells us that there is, an there is an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. And that is absolutely true. It also tells us that we have received the earnest of our inheritance. The spirit of the living God. Let me talk about inheritance for a minute. Sometimes we view inheritance and we view it through the mentality of a one-time thing. In other words... Someone passes away, they have a lot of money, and it passes to us. And it can be that. But within the framework of the kingdom of God, it's much grander. It is an ongoing, unchanging richness that we have access to as heirs. Let me, let me tell you a story give you, with the intent of giving you a picture. I had the opportunity, I was in a home group meeting a few years ago, and I had the opportunity to hear a man share with me about his inheritance. This man's family, three or four generations ago, started a uh, sugar processing factory. Over the years, that factory has become one of the largest sugar processing factories in the entire country. 
Also through the years, ownership of that factory has passed from one heir to the next. His mother passed on, when she passed away, she passed on her inheritance to her two children. So he was an heir within that company, not because of anything that he did, not because of any measure of work that he did, but because of who he was, because of who his parent was. He was an heir. There were certain benefits that that offered him, not the least of which was the fact was that the, at the end of every fiscal year, after they determined what the actual profits were for, for the factory, he got a check in the mail. Now, depending on what the actual profits were, that check could vary anywhere from $20,000 to $50,000. Just showed up in the mail, like magic. He received that money because he was an heir. It was an inheritance. Let me, let me point a few things out about that. He didn't have to call and ask them for his inheritance. He didn't call the accountants once a year and go, Hey, um, will you send me my inheritance money? I, I would really like you to send it. He received it because he was an heir. He didn't have to go beg them to give it to him. Let me, let me say this also. He didn't have to sit at home and hope they were actually going to decide to give it to him. He didn't have to sit there and go, I hope they decide to send me my inheritance check this year. They were legally obligated to send him that check because he was an heir. He was a son. Another thing, one last thing about that. There was no demand placed on him that in order for him to get that inheritance check, he had to come to the factory so many hours a year and perform so much work, do certain tasks. There was no demands like that were made on him. He didn't have to go work the sugar. He didn't have to go clean the toilets. He didn't have to go do all of these things to try and get his inheritance. He didn't have to work for it to earn it. It was his by legal right. There are people employed at that factory who are paid a wage to come to work and, who, and to perform a particular job at a particular time. If they abide by that, if they do that job, they receive a wage. If they don't do that job, they don't receive a wage. Their, their financial reward is based entirely on the work that they do at the factory. His financial reward is based entirely on the inheritance he received as a son. A further benefit... I hope you can understand the analogy I'm about to give you. <clears throat> a further benefit is that he, as a son, has the right to go to the factory at certain times and load up barrels and barrels of sugar onto the back of his truck, as much as he can load up and take it home for him and his family to enjoy. He has a right to enter into what is his inheritance and receive of the abundance of what it produces. He has the right to because he's a son. As a son, he has a right to partake of the fruit of what is produced by that factory. This story is meant to provoke the understanding that when God says we became joint heirs with Christ, it means that we partake of the ownership. We partake of the inheritance that he's bestowed on, on us. All of that richness is available to us because God wills it to be so. He's passed it by legal right to his sons through Christ. It's ours by inheritance, not by effort. There's a difference between serving others and serving God as sons of God and begging for bread. There's a difference between serving others and serving God as sons of God and hiring ourselves out as cheap labor. There's a difference. I urge you as the body of Christ, start thinking as sons of God. Start thinking of as heirs and stop thinking like hired hands. You are heirs of the kingdom of God. The Bible says that the whole creation groans for the manifestation of the sons of God because it longs to behold the glory of its creator resident within them. The whole creation groans. It longs for you to be a son, to be an heir. Something else about who we are and what we've received in Christ and how we walk in the fullness of it. 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings chapter 13. Now this is about the prophet Elisha. Elisha, of course, as you may know, was a prophet in Israel, mighty man of God, anointed, filled with the Spirit of God. 
But though he were a mighty prophet of God, what he had was nothing compared to those who are heirs in Christ. But then read the passage. I love this. Elisha died, and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land the spring of that year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders. And they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood to his feet. Now let me ask you something. In that story, how much do we learn? What does Elisha show us about how to get God to release his power in our life? What were the efforts that he had to put forth? What was it that he had to do to get God to release power in his life? The question, if you think about it very long, is actually absurd. Because Elisha was a corpse. A man was raised from the dead through Elisha. Not because Elisha in that moment prayed hard enough, believed long enough, cried loud enough, fasted long enough, or did anything else. He was raised from the dead because of who Elisha was. Because of the power and the anointing of God that rested upon Elisha by the will of God. Why do you think you're any different if Christ is in you? Why do you think you have to go beg God to give you the blessings He already has told you is yours? God uses us, and we don't even know how sometimes. God uses us even when we're not necessarily trying to be used. You go out. You live in the Spirit of God. And what you'll find is that there are people being affected by the things that you say and the way that you live, and more importantly, by the Spirit of God that's in you. And a lot of times, you don't even know it. You're going to have people come to you two, three, four, five years down the road and go, you know what, back, back remember when this happened and you told me this? You, God used you to change my life, and you won't even have known it. Because it's not about you or your efforts. It's about the God that's in you. There is no limit to the possibilities, to the power that is resident in the children of God who have come to full age, who are mature, who abide in the truth. Within them are streams in the desert, a river that flows from the throne of God and extends refreshing to every dry, weary soul that longs for more than what life has offered. Within God's kingdom, it is not uncommon for people to go from despair, from hopelessness to spiritual anguish to all-out revival in their spirit, and that change occur between breaths in a moment of time. All of that is the result of a renewed perception of the truth that is in Christ and that is Christ. That perception declutters the convoluted thinking that has a tendency to creep into our hearts and creep into our minds and make us lose sight of what is true in God. The truth will make you free. If you want the unequaled wealth that God has provided in Jesus Christ for you, you can have it. He's not withholding it from you. He's not asking you to come earn it from His hand. It is produced within you by His Word finding entrance into a heart that is fully prepared to receive it. When you look into His Word and you respond to it, you will discover who you truly are because you will discover who God meant for you to be. You will discover who you are in Him and who He is in truth. I'm going to close with these words. As human beings, we sometimes struggle with a misguided perception that somehow for God to change our circumstances, for God to change our weaknesses, for God to to change what we're struggling with. That there's going to be some, need to be some kind of extensive, painful event, some painful overhaul, and we dread the very thought of it. We, we frame it in questions like, oh, what is God going to have to do to me to fix me? What is God going to have to do to me to deliver me from this bondage, from this sin, from this circumstance? Where we desire to be in God, where we know God wants us to be, can seem so distant sometimes that we wonder how we will ever find our way there. We feel that way because we view transformation, we view change through a shattered lens and not through the crystal clear lens of the truth. Our change, our transformation, 
Our alteration of course, if you will, is nothing less than the result of the provocative action of God. It is God initiated. We are drawn into life. We are drawn from a place of pitiful loss by the sudden appearance of truth bearing the banner of hope. Repentance, as it were. Because that's what we're talking about. Repentance, change, turning to the truth and receiving. Repentance is a beginning at the heart of all repentance that leads to, to, to true transformation is the accompanying perception of God. He is the glimmering light in the dark distance that provokes our first step towards freedom. He is the dancing glow of orange embers on the horizon that we so desperately long for in the harsh winds of winter. Therefore, an accurate assessment of repentance is understood not only by where we have left, but unto whom we have arrived. Not only what we have been delivered from, but who we have been, been delivered to. It is a marvelous quest laid before us that is God in the beginning, God in the end, and God every step in between. The truth you seek is in His presence. It is in the person of Christ. I've often heard the question posed because we desire to see change in our society, in our culture, in our, in our community, in our church, in ourselves. And I've heard the question posed, will there be an end time revival? The very question, the very outlook is somewhat absurd because it views such a possibility in the framework as to whether God intends to send it or not. You hear me. Revival is already sent. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. The experiencing revival is not contingent upon whether God desires for us to experience it, but whether we will. As long as men can be saved, revival exists in the earth. As long as God extends the salvation of Jesus Christ to mankind, revival is inherent in the offer. Hear me, please. I know that there are people in this room and people around you that are hurting, that are in difficult places, that are experiencing pain and loneliness and, and frustration and confusion and all manner of things. I know that. I understand the pain and the loneliness that life can heap upon us at times. For a heart that's filled with loneliness, life is a broken mystery. And I know there are people in this room that are in that very place. Loneliness just so you know, isn't simply experienced through isolation from human contact. Some of the loneliest souls are constantly surrounded by other people. And it's a terrible torment. It's a terrible torment to feel so desperately alone with unspoken pain in a room full of mirth and laughter. But you're never alone. Because he says he will never leave you nor forsake you. You're never alone. Sometimes people hurt. Please remember, church, sometimes people hurt so deeply that they purposely harden their hearts because they've determined it's better to not feel anything at all than to, than to continue experiencing such inexpressible pain within their soul. The heart can only bear so much. So I say to you, if that's where you find yourself, I say to you, from this hour, from this moment, Rise up from where you sit and follow Him. Seek Him with all of your heart and you will find Him. I know this to be true because the Word says you will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all of your heart. If you, if you will seek Me with all of your heart, you will find Me. And you'll find the life that He intends for you. Now you might say to yourself, because you've heard that. You've heard it for years. You've heard it all your life. Seek God with all of your heart. And you might say, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what that means. That's okay. Just begin. One step. Take the first step. That step is for you to purpose in your heart to seek Him and to be filled with His life. His Word says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. If you it's an unchanging, unalterable, absolute truth. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. He issues the call to you. 
you respond. And he bridges the gap where you lack understanding. He bridges the gap. He bridges the chasm that you don't know how to cross. Respond to his invitation in truth. Don't be amongst those who are searching more for reasons to doubt than reasons to believe. Because here's another truth. One day, every person will pass into eternity. And when they do, when the dimly lit glass of this life is shattered, and they find an unlimited, full comprehension of the majesty and the glory and the goodness of the living God, every last person will bow in wonder before someone so glorious. The Bible says, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love them. But He has revealed them unto us by His Spirit. He speaks to us in the everyday context of our life. And He draws us. He invites us to revival. He invites us to abide. So I say to you in closing, abide. Abide in the Word. And find the freedom and the truth that is Jesus Christ. God bless you. Amen, amen. Such a good word. Such a good word. I'm just going to close this out because there's, there's really nothing I can say after that. I just love how Jesus, everything, the fullness of Christ, everything he is, everything he has to offer, the freedom that is available to us is freely given. We don't have to twist his arm. We don't have to beg. He said it himself. Brian said, we don't have to beg God for anything. It's freely given. We don't have to perform for anything. And revival in life, it's all found in the Word of God. It's all found in His Spirit. Sometimes we complicate things. I don't, I don't know why. We, we make it so hard, but it's so simple. It's right before us. We serve a good God, amen. Such a good Father, a loving Father. He just pours it out freely on us. So let's just take a moment. I'm going to pray. But in your hearts while I'm praying, just take a moment to receive from him. Because, like I said, he's got his hands open. It's available for you right now, in this moment. Freedom and life, the bondages can be gone right now.